air pollution is killing 7 million people per year. And this is really tangible because it can be your brother or your child or your parents. Uh, the pollution of the water, the pollution of the soil, poisonous chemicals that are put in the food, uh, the inequalities. Uh, our world is unfair. There are too many people who are left behind. And this is extremely dangerous. It's a bomb that can explode any time. Welcome to another episode of Who's Saving the Planet? I am Tony Noto, and I am with my co-host, producer, environmentalist extraordinaire, Lex Kiefhaber. Tony! <laughs> hey, bud. Good to see you. Wow, the energy today. It's Monday, Oh, it's man. a beautiful day. It's a beautiful day in the neighborhood. I'm back in Brooklyn. My dog's asleep on the bed. We've got a lot of wonderful new developments going on with our wonderful family here at Who's Saving the Planet. There is nothing to be unhappy about in this little corner of our world for right now at this particular moment. Yeah, the energy is on high, especially for this episode. I am so excited. It's a giant of an episode, not in length. It's going to be a, a tightly edited episode, but we have an awesome, awesome guest. Absolutely. I'm Dr. Gonna, Picard. Dr. Captain Picard. Dr. Captain Picard, indeed. Uh, <laughs> to one the, day, that is aspirational right there, to be a yeah. Dr. Captain. Well, he is the closest thing we have to the fictional Captain Picard from Star Trek, who people may or may not know, doesn't matter, was a legendary explorer in the Star Trek verse. Captain Bertrand Picard is our guest today, and he is legitimately an explorer. An adventurer is, is more like it. Here are two small, here are two things that Dr. Picard, that Dr. Captain Picard, excuse me, has done. He has flown a hot air balloon around the entire planet Earth. I believe he was the first person to have ever done that. And he has flown a solar powered plane around the entire planet Earth. Again, he is the first person, I believe, who has ever done such a thing. And he's also a psychiatrist. He's also a hypnotist. And he, wait one second, this is insane. He's also a European hang glider aero, a European hang glider aerobatics champion. I'm sorry. That, that was a mouthful. That's a that's a thing you can be. That is. I, I can't even How do you do acrobatics on a hang glider? That just can I what is what do you think his health insurance premium is? Like wow. week in, week out. More than my food bill. Yeah. <laughs> so that's how we're going to be talking to Dr. Captain Picard about today, because all of the things that he does are in service of his larger mission, which is to build for us a more sustainable and more environmentally and economically viable world. And I say those two things in concert and purpose. His organization, the Solar Impulse Foundation, is an organization whose mission is to identify and promote companies and products which are both a more sustainable option than what's on the market and are profitable. Combining these two things that we here at this podcast feel so deeply about, stuff that's making the world better and stuff that's going to be able to make money down the road. He's traveling the globe. He's meeting with global leaders and essentially compiling or assembling. He's like building the Avengers 
of climate change fighters in this world. He's doing it in a way that, that combines the idea of not only is this important for all of the moral reasons, and specifically in the last couple of weeks, the social justice issues that we've touched on, but also it needs to be housed within the capitalist society that we live in. So it needs to be economically viable in addition to being just the right thing to do. He's a fighter. Yeah. He's, he's fighting for justice. The third generation in his family to do that. His grandfather was also an explorer. August Picard, who was a balloonist, so he gets his balloon adventurism from grandpa. And his father, Jacques, I think it's Jacques or Jacques, was an undersea explorer. And he was the first guy to go into, this, uh, into the Mariana Trench in a submarine. The first guy who went to the deepest part of the Atlantic Ocean uh, seven miles down was Captain Picard's dad. And so now he's picking up the mantle, traveling the world, and to prove to science deniers that, hey, uh, we're, we're in a rough road here. It's, it's, <laughs> climate change is, is really going to kill us if we don't do something to stop it. Well, that's a heck of an optimistic note on this wonderful Monday morning, <laughs> Tony. Even your dour things can't get me down because people like Dr. Picard are in the world fighting every day to make sure that it not only continues to exist, but gets better with every generation that comes forward. There's that quote that I, I love so much that um, considering his lineage and where he's coming from, that I think speaks to what his mission is, which is we do not inherit the earth from our ancestors. We borrow it from our children. So while he has taken on the mantle of his forebears or fathers specifically, his whole mission is to protect this wonderful little blue spinning ball of life that we have for the future generations to come. Insofar as he is achieving that, we celebrate Dr. Picard. And we will do that right now. Let's go. Captain Picard. You know, as an explorer, I, I noticed that everyone who went in space, who did incredible adventures on mountains, on North, South Pole, under the water or wherever, they all come back and they say, the earth is beautiful, we have to protect it. Yeah. Life is a miracle on this planet and we have to respect it. But it doesn't change anything actually. It doesn't change anything because it only speaks to people who have this respect for nature, this compassion for, for life. But the key decision makers are on another wavelength. The key decision makers, they're on the wavelength of, of profit, of job creation, of being re-elected. So we have to learn how to speak their language. And their language was not uh, possible, I would say, uh, even 10 years ago, because all the solutions to protect the environment were too expensive. They needed subsidies. The governments did not have the money for that, and the public did not want to make any sacrifice in mobility, comfort, or standard of life in order to protect the environment. So this is how I explained that in the last 50 years, so little has been done, and why we are now really on the edge of an environmental disaster. So yeah. what I want to do now, after the flight around the world of solar impulse, uh, is to be really very down to earth, very, very practical. <laughs> um, I'm selecting now with the Solar Impulse Foundation, with all our team, 
the solutions that are brought by startups or by, by big corporations. Uh, these uh, solutions can be technologies, it can be uh, systems, products, materials, uh, devices, and they go through an assessment by a group of independent experts. And they are assessed under the angle of credibility. Does it work now? Can it go on the market right now? Or maybe even is already on the market right now? Mm. Second criteria, does it protect the environment over the entire life cycle? And third criteria, is it profitable? Does it make money? Will it create jobs? Will it right. be a, a way to develop new businesses? And if yes, on the three criteria, then the Solar Impulse Foundation is giving the label efficient solution and we are promoting it for free huh, because we are non-for-profit. We are promoting it uh, to investors, to politicians, to governments, to big corporations in order to fast track their implementation on the market. Dr. Picard, as somebody who has, uh, forgive the pun, but a 40,000 foot view on the world and its problems, how do you see this problem from that view? What, what, where, if you could identify a nucleus of that problem, and then what would be a large scale solution that you're pushing towards that will be able to get us through this threshold from awareness and activation to a better world that actually has these outcomes that are going to allow us to survive in the future? Yes, I believe that today we speak a lot about climate change because climate change is a big issue, but it is intangible for the people who are listening. Uh, you, you live in a normally developed country. Uh, you feel maybe sometimes that it's a little bit warmer and you think, uh, oh, it's not too bad. We can have barbecue <laughs> and in the garden. Yeah, we can all jump and, in the pool. Yeah, yeah exactly. It's, it's, it's not something that frightens the people in average. Uh, but there are a lot of other problems that are linked to the activities of human beings that should be emphasized much more. Uh, it is air pollution. Air pollution is killing 7 million people per year. And this is really tangible because it can be your brother or your child or your parents. Uh, the pollution of the water, the pollution of the soil, poisonous chemicals that are put in the food, uh, the inequalities. Uh, our world is unfair. There are too many people who are left behind. And this is extremely dangerous. It's a bomb that can explode anytime. We saw last year in Chile, uh, the social unrest that, that happened because people were fed up of being left behind. Right. So I would say that our world, with all these problems, including climate change, is just reflecting the unreasonable behavior that we have acquired. Uh, I think today the goal is to make the highest amount of money on the short term, and it will be very expensive on the medium term. And this is why we have to communicate at the same time on very tangible problems and show that the solutions are extremely attractive. Because for years we have spoken about problems and people were fed up of the problems. They were depressed. They were thinking the world will explode but we have no way to change course right it's a wrong message it's a wrong message we have the way to change course the solutions exist and in the field of water in the field of technology uh, in the field of energy 
in the field of mobility, construction, agriculture, industry. We have to be much more efficient. This is the big problem. We waste so much. Half yeah. of the energy is wasted. Half, half of the food produced is wasted. Half of the natural resources are wasted. Even in the fishery, fisheries, half of the, the fish are just wasted. This is something that is very expensive. It's very expensive to waste as much. And today, if we speak of all the advantages of changing, if we start to speak of how much value the waste have in order to be a resource for something else, how much more money we can make with circular economy, all these new ways are, are much more inclusive, much more inclusive. We can speak to people who have industries and help them to diversify, help them to be more logical, even more than ecological. And yeah. the mindset I have when I, when I talk to politicians is to say, even if there was no climate change, even if there was no problem with the environment, all these solutions would make sense because they would create jobs and they would make profits. Well, one of the solutions that I believe is a part of the Solar Foundation is a company that we featured here on the podcast. It was a company called BioLite. It's based in Brooklyn, New York. And it's one of 500 companies now within the Solar Foundation, Dr. Picard? Yes, we have 510 solutions to date uh, that have received the label. And they are on every continent. And of course, we have American companies, American startups. Yeah. And we would be very, very happy to have even more from, from the U.S. because you, you have such an innovative country. It would be fantastic to have more startups from the U.S. that would apply to have this label and to include the United States much more because now it's more in, in Europe that people are submitting the solutions. Uh, it sounded like there was two, two arguments that you were making simultaneously. One was about awareness and communication, letting people know that these solutions exist and that they are viable. Second, to that point, is something that you say um, in one of your keynote addresses in Paris, which was that uh, to prove the protection of the environment is financially profitable. So where do we go or how do we motivate that kinetic change or that change from the potential energy of the awareness to the kinetic adoption of these solutions with the speed and the scale that we'll need to tackle that core problem of carbon emission? Yes, today I think we have two groups. One group is the one who wants to protect the environment and they think about the industry as the devil. <laughs> and you have the group who is in the industry, who is paying salaries, who is uh, allowing a social development, a good quality of life. Um, but if, you, if, if they are told about the protection of the environment, they believe that it's a threat for them. Uh, they believe it will limit their, their expansion and their, their development. So we need to have as many interactions as possible between the two. And this would be a big advantage. It's not what is happening now. Uh, now a lot of green parties hate to speak with the industry. And then the industry doesn't want to talk to the greens. So we have to get out of this dogmatic approach and see how the industry can diversify, how the industry can be more efficient, how the industry can bring new products on the market, can use, can use new processes. And for this, 
all the people who want to protect the environment have to collaborate. They have to make an alliance with the big industries in order to help them to be cleaner. Because these companies, they don't pollute by pleasure. They, they pollute because they don't have the means to do something else. So let's help them to have the means to do something better. Marsha gave us a heads up about how tough it is to get involved in the Solar Foundation, to be a part of this collaboration team, to prove to these world leaders that not only are the solutions viable, but profitable. Walk us through the application process, because I, I, I understand it's a long time. Uh, a lot of folks get rejected. Uh, companies like BioLite obviously are, are made, they made it through. Give us an idea of what that process is to get involved with you and your growing team. Yes, the startup or the big company uh, should first register on the website to become a member of the World Alliance for Efficient Solutions. Uh, it's a group today of about 2,600 companies. Uh, this takes 10 minutes. It's, it's fast, you sign up, and you have to guarantee that you are implementing the spirit of the Global Compact of the United Nations. Uh, so that your goal is to make good for, for the world with the activities you have. Once you've done that, you can submit your solution uh, by explaining what is the solution, explaining why it's profitable and how it protects the environment. And this is roughly half a day of work, half a day of work. It, it, it's not the moon, huh? uh, it, it's possible. And uh, we've seen that we, we need the application form to be really serious to contain all the, all the details. So we have members of our foundation who are helping the startups to submit uh, the, this form. Uh, by phone, by Zoom, uh, now with the COVID-19 crisis, everybody knows much better than before how to do it with Zoom, uh, team meeting, uh, <laughs> Skype, or whatever. Yeah. So we can really help them. Uh, we take them by the hand. We help them to submit the, 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 the form. And then it goes to the experts. Uh, I would say that less and less uh, solutions are rejected because we do a good pre-screening before. If we believe that the solution has no change, no chance uh, to receive the label, we do not push the people to submit their, their, their application form. Okay. And you know, we, we need to be serious. Um, when I am asked by the French president, Emmanuel Macron, to speak to the heads of states at the G7, I need to certify that the label that these solutions have received is serious. That is, is something that is really profitable, that experts have really assessed the, the credibility. And uh, this, this is the credibility also of the SolarFox Foundation. I wanted to ask one question when you said the experts analyze the products. What criteria are you using to uh, ascertain whether or not something passes whatever threshold you have for that life cycle analysis of the product? It must be better for the environment than what exists already today. So does that mean it needs to be net negative in terms of carbon production? Or does that mean that if there is a current system that is worse, if this is 10 or 15% better, it still would cross the threshold? Yeah, if it is 10 or 15% better, and at the same time more profitable than the benchmark, then it can get the label. Now, of course, maybe in two years, you will have another solution that would be 50% better. Right. And then it will get the label. And the latest label, of course, will have the, the best value. 
So if the problem here is that there exist technologies and products that are better for our planet already today, and they're not being used, they're not being developed, they're not being adopted by corporations, by governments, what have you. So that's the issue that we have. There's so much potential, it's not being used. And the solution you've devised is a means of communicating to the people that could buy or could uh, use these solutions, which one is the best. So it's, if you will, like a marketing opportunity or a signaling opportunity that this is something which has the solar impulse certificate of authenticity and guarantee. We do marketing in a way. We do it for free uh, because we're just convinced that for the world, for humankind, these products or technologies or devices are better. So it's true, it is marketing, uh, but it's also advocacy. Because what happens today is that the regulation allows people to pollute. The regulation does not prevent anyone to put as much CO2 as he wants in the atmosphere, plastic in the water, uh, toxical uh, uh, poisons in the, in the soil, in rivers, or in the food. Yeah. So this has to change. Uh, if we can prove to a government that the solutions exist to be 50% more efficient in the field, it means that the targets in the regulation has to be 50% improved uh, because the solutions exist. We, we should not allow the situation today uh, where a lot of companies say, what we do is legal. We follow the rules. Of course, we pollute, but the rules allow us to do it. We need regulations that will create the need on the market to pull all these uh, new solutions in order to be, to be more efficient and to be cleaner. Mm -hmm. And it, what is really strange when I observe the situation is that these technologies are profitable. They should attract everybody. Everybody should use them. But basically, it's not the case because so many companies are afraid to change. They're afraid of doing something differently than before. So yeah. the regulation has to encourage the adoption of these new technologies and it will oblige people to create jobs. It will oblige people to make more money. And at the end, it will oblige the world to be cleaner. So it's a win-win-win. So if the push element of this then is the regulation saying, I'm going to push you to change whatever your status quo is now. And even if it is, there's switching costs, as you said, companies both have a technological switching cost, a status quo switching cost, and maybe a financial one. So that's the push of the regulation. And then the pull would be the consumer demand, which you're signaling through the certification to change the way that people buy stuff because they're going to want to make purchasing decisions that are more aligned with their values which in this case is saving the planet. So you're, you're operating on both ends of that push and pull. Yes, exactly. And what is also interesting to see is that a lot of big corporations are very keen to have regulations uh, that go in the good direction and oblige them to change as long as there are no distortion of competitivity. Uh, <laughs> the, the, they, they want a fair... Uh, play field where everybody is obliged to do the same and if the regulation is predictable the companies they're happy because they know where and how to invest and there is enough money on the market yeah. and as soon as an investment is done that is profitable 
they, they're all happy to do it. But they, they need, and this is really what I observed, they need a kick in the ass uh, to, to do it. <laughs> and then they say, oh, thank you. It was so useful. Now everything is better. But they need this kick in the ass in the beginning. And, and this is the regulation. Do you think the United States needs the biggest kick in the ass? Because we only have 35 companies out of the 510 so far. No, it's maybe because we have not started to, to work with the U.S. We started to work with Europe uh, because it's where we have our base. Okay. Uh, but of course, we would like to include the, the United States much more because you are such an innovative country. Now, well, as of right now, you've officially started to work with the U.S. So welcome. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We, we, are, we needed Absolutely. you. I love it. I, so, I love um, it. Let me ask you this then. At our current rate of adoption of these technologies, do you think that we're on the path to as quickly as we need to and at scale that we need to transition away from the old stuff, which is wasteful and dirty and bad to the new stuff in order to save, to stay within, let's say the 2% centigrade threshold? We are absolutely not going fast enough. Uh, when you see what happens in California with the Clean Air Act, with the um, Energy Efficiency Act, uh, with all these really clever regulations. Uh, California now has a stable uh, emission of CO2 rate. They do not increase their CO2 emissions, but at the same time, they have twice the economical growth rate of the US, 5% instead of 2.5%. So it shows that it works. On the other hand, you have other parts of the US where all the regulations to protect the environment are destroyed, which allows to go back to dirty means of production uh, for the industry or for the energy and for everything at, at the end, which makes no money. Yeah. It makes no money because it is old infrastructures that are completely outdated. So really what I want everybody to understand is that the biggest economical markets of the century, the best way to earn money to have economical growth, to increase the GDP, to increase the jobs, is to replace everything that is old, polluting and inefficient by what is today modern, efficient, and that protects the environment. Yeah, look to the if future. We do that in all the fields, in water, construction, mobility, agriculture, industry, it is trillions of dollars and millions of jobs to create, and the money is available to do it. Uh, today, uh, the money is so cheap. If you borrow money, you modernize your infrastructures, you give back the money at the end because the investment has paid for itself. So let's say we're looking back 10 years from now and it's 2030 and it's been successful. We have achieved these goals and we've adopted these technologies to change the way we do, we've done business. What have we done differently from the last 10 years to today, to the next 10 years that allowed us to catch up to the change that we need to make? We make money with the protection of the environment. This is new. You, you, you look at everything that can be more profitable, more efficient, that save natural resources, that create new jobs, that create new outcome for the industry, and, and you implement it. If you do that in 2030, the country will be much more modern, much more efficient, and the, the money will be made by everything that reduces 
the, the waste of energy, the waste of, uh, the, 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 the waste of waste, if we can say, <laughs> we're losing a lot of waste. All this inefficiency costs a fortune. It's a fortune. And yeah. if we understand that, it will, be, um, it will be in 10 years a huge success. Uh, if not, we will be in a situation where climate change and pollution and the depletion of natural resources will be so expensive that we will not be able to afford it. From what I know about this, the one common denominator to do all of those things is to set a price on carbon and to institute that in a way that is transferable across borders, be they domestic or international. Do you agree that, is there a way to do it without that? There could be a way if people were reasonable. <laughs> Let's throw that out the window right now. <laughs> I can tell you. Reasonable. No, people I think. are not reasonable enough. So they I want to make money. Today, relying yeah. on reason, relying on altruism, that's not going to get us there fast. Exactly. Not going to work. And when you speak of price of carbon, the people who don't understand the principle will say, oh, it will make everything more expensive. We cannot afford it. It will destroy the economy. Actually, it's exactly the opposite. If you put a price on carbon, you will start to become more efficient because CO2 in the atmosphere is not only a factor of climate change, it is mainly a factor of inefficiency in the way we use energy and we use resources. So a price on carbon will oblige people to be more efficient and to be much more competitive. And the example of Sweden with the highest price on carbon in Europe has pushed Sweden to be, for the industry, export industry, much more competitive. It's a paradox, but it works. Do you think there's a way for us to do it without a price on carbon? Not fast enough. I, I give you an example. When I was a child, I was going for holidays in the Swiss mountains. And all the people of the village were taking their garbage and throwing it in a valley where there was a nice little river and the thing was burning, fermenting, uh, stinking, smoking. It was disgusting. <laughs> Why did people stop to do it? Only because it was prohibited to continue doing it. Because it was legal in the beginning. When it started to be illegal, what happened? It happened that a new industry appeared. Collection of waste. Collection of garbage. Transformation of garbage into energy recycling, second life, circular economy. And this has created much more jobs, much more jobs than by just throwing all the garbage in the river. And, and this is, for me, a really interesting example. Uh, today, when you buy a fridge, you buy the sticker that allows you to throw away your fridge right. uh, at a special place where it will be recycled. Yeah. Why don't we have the sticker for the CO2? It's not yeah. normal. CO2 is a waste uh, that is lost, but it can also be a resource. It can also be a, a way to become more, much more efficient. People can use CO2 on the chimneys of the industries and factories to, to turn it into foam uh, to make mattress for, for beds. You have a company, uh, uh, Covestro in Germany, who, who is doing that. So we see that we really have to open our spirit, open our minds to all the solutions that we can support thanks to a CO2 tax, 
uh, of course, that will disturb some people, but will help so many others. Well, we only have a, a couple minutes left, and I, I just want to make sure I get this question in because this part of your bio fascinated me. You are uh, an expert in hypnotherapy, and I was yes. curious. <laughs> I'm curious to know if if your expertise in that field informs your approach at all. Are there any lessons you learned as a hypnotherapist that helps you in your mission and in, in getting world leaders to uh, adopt new ways of, of doing business and, and new technologies? Yes. Um, you know, when you learn hypnosis, you discover how much the people who suffer, suffer because they are prisoners of old ways of thinking and they're afraid of changing, and they're afraid not to find the skills and the resources to change. And basically, hypnosis is helping the people to connect with themselves and to discover how much more performance, how much more skills and resources and potential they have inside of themselves. And this is what is magical with hypnosis, because it reveals the potential of the human beings. So, what I try to do, uh, even without doing formal hypnosis sessions with the people <laughs> I speak with, is to give to the people the confidence in changing. They can yeah. trust themselves. They, they can know that with the solutions that exist, they will become better. They will become richer. They will be more helpful for others. They will increase actually their power. For politicians, they can be better re-elected if they communicate better with the citizens and explain their vision for the earth, for the population, for the citizens. Donald Trump wants to put the economy before everything else. Money, profit, job creation. What he needs to understand is that the only way to do it today is by going to the new innovative technologies that can create more jobs than sticking back with coal and with polluting stuff, uh, that has no future. It creates much less jobs. So the mistake, the big mistake, is to speak to Donald Trump about protection of the environment. Yeah. We should talk to him about the profitability of protecting the environment. Let's say you could turn back the clock 30 years or 40 years, and you could re-enter the world now as a 25-year-old or a 30-year-old, where would you put your efforts? Where would you dedicate your career starting now as a 30-year-old that you believe would have the most impact for the next 30 years? Energy efficiency, renewable energies. Well, basically, you know, I'm doing today at 62 years old, what I would do also if I was 25. Perfect. So we've still got the benefit of you for at least another 30 years doing this. Yeah. But the, you know, the examples I had from my father and my grandfather who were huge explorers is the fact that the protection of the environment is a fantastic way to explore the world. And the scientific adventure has to be done with the spirit of protecting humankind. And all these new technologies is a way to do it. So today, we are in the middle of something, let's say, in the middle of a dream that can be fulfilled. Mm. In the last 50 years, it was just a dream to protect the environment. Today, it can be done. And this is why the period in which we're living is fantastic. 
I love this moment in time where we have the solutions where we can do it. I can't think of a better place to leave it off than there, Lex. What do you think? Absolutely. No, that was fantastic. And I want to reiterate, we really appreciate you sharing your time with us and your perspective with us. It's invaluable. And the work you're doing is a larger scale of what we're trying to do with our little platform here is to identify these businesses that are both economically viable while being good for the planet. So thank you for providing us that inspiration. It was really a pleasure to meet you, to do this uh, uh, discussion with you. And I hope we can motivate a lot of people to, to go into this dimension. Yes. Uh, you're, do, you're doing great. And if we can collaborate together, it's really yes. for me and for all my team. Let's well, keep we- in touch on, on your future adventures. I mean, you are a true adventurer and I'm sure that there's plenty uh, down the pike. Yes, I would love to promote these 1,000 solutions by flying around the world again with something <laughs> crazy to to present it, to attract the awareness of the people again. Awesome. Thank you so much. Most welcome. Take Most care. Welcome. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. Thank you for coming on the show. Thank you for listening to this very special edition of Who's Saving the Planet? Lex, we have a lot of news on the horizon. We do. So stay in touch. Uh, The newsletter, you can sign up at www.savingtheplanetpod.com. And if you go there, you will see over the next couple of weeks, we are going to be coming forth with a lot of more content and information. So these will be things like blog posts, buyer's guides, sustainability information, test consumer testimonials. Things are going to help us navigate this sometimes very opaque and confusing world about what is actually good for the planet and what isn't. Also, give us a like or follow or click on the Instagrams and the Facebooks. Yes, show uh, us some love. Show us some love. Who's Saving the Planet um, is the handle. Uh, check us out wherever you are finding your daily dash of dopamine. And we will... We're also going to be revamping that. We're going to be taking some of these podcasts and maybe putting them on IGTV so you can see our shining faces at some point. Yes. Sorry about that, Tony. I should have yeah. let you know in the first hand. Well, I'll do it. But as long as people don't get nervous in my beard, it's at a weird length right now. I look like a homeless man, as my wife reminds me. Uh, I, we're <laughs> gonna we're gonna like leave <laughs> that exactly where that is <laughs> directly onward um your beard looks great oh uh, thank you man and also we had a great episode uh that was released on friday with the milk marketing king of the northeast dan horan the ceo and founder of five acre farms that was a great conversation and i really liked it so i just give it a little call out a little shout back to that take a listen if you haven't already Yeah, we have great written content coming up too. Uh, We're going to be publishing some exclusive content to our website so folks can get excited for that if they feel like reading. Hopefully they do, in addition to listening to our wonderful voices. Indeed, moving and shaking everywhere that moving and shaking happens. And we'll move and shake next week. Tune in. Or on Friday, as always. I always forget that part. (laughs) It's okay. I don't take it personally. No problem. Friday and Tuesday. Be here. (laughs) 